Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I was sitting there face-to-face with a seven-year-old boy, and what was unique about this boy was that he was from the School for the Blind. And after looking at his eyes, we recognized that, in fact, he wasn't blind. He just needed a super strong pair of eyeglasses. And we had brought down 5,000 pair of glasses categorized by strength. We went to the strongest box and we picked out a pair that was almost a perfect match for his minus 20 diopter prescription. And I was the lucky person to put those glasses on his face. And when I did, it changed both of our lives. Uh, I, as I often say, I gave him his vision and he gave me mine. Vision Spring is a charity, it's a, it's a non-profit social enterprise, so although we charge our customers for their glasses, uh, we are not a for-profit organization, so there are ways for charities to uh, deliver these important products and services, but to do it in a way that has more sustainability built into it, and more, most importantly, uh, builds into it the needs and desires and the aspirations of the consumer that you're trying to reach. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jordan Casalo. Jordan is founder of Vision Spring, a social enterprise whose mission is to ensure equitable and affordable eyeglasses available to every individual to live a productive life. The World Health Organization estimates that more than 600 million people could have their vision improved with access to eyeglasses. To date, Vision Spring has distributed over 3.5 million eyeglasses to their target customers who typically earn between $1 and $8 a day and estimates its economic impact in the region of $280 million. Jordan also recently set up iAlliance, a multi-stakeholder initiative to radically scale access and provision to eyeglasses. Thank you very much, Jordan, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. Thank you very much. So I'd like to talk to you today about, about where all this came from, the initial idea and how you got things off the ground, Jordan. Yeah, um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the Vision Spring story with your uh, listeners. I look forward to uh, a rich and open dialogue to, today. Uh, I, th- I think it's important to, uh, before talking in relation to the, what I did to start Vision Spring, was to step back and think about the motivation. Um, The motivation came uh, in sort of an unlikely place. Uh, Prior to starting my work as an eye doctor and a social entrepreneur, my passion was climbing mountains all over the world. And um, when you're in places of incredible grandeur uh, and you're risking life and limb in the pursuit of climbing mountains, a couple of things happen. Uh, One is you get a deep perspective uh, of what's important out in the world. And you also face uh, your mortality very directly. And when you face your mortality very directly, you start to ask really fundamental questions like, why am I here? Does my life really matter? Uh, And I was struggling with those questions. And I was in my early 20s at the time. And I remember a particular moment where I was in northern Alaska climbing in the Brooks Range 
And the whole world was conspiring to tell me that I was insignificant. And I remember kind of screaming back at the wind and saying that I mattered. But deep in my bones, I didn't know how. Uh, but at that time, uh, I sort of made a pledge to myself to dare to matter in the world. Um, and it wasn't until about six months later that I figured out how I could matter. And that was um, when I was in Mexico. Uh, I had just started my training as an eye doctor, and I joined an organization that started to bring eye care to underserved populations in the, in the developing parts of the world. And I was sitting there face-to-face -face with a seven-year-old boy. And what was unique about this boy was that he was from the School for the Blind. And after looking at his eyes, we recognized that, in fact, he wasn't blind. He just needed a super strong pair of eyeglasses. And we had brought down 5,000 pair of glasses categorized by strength. We went to the strongest box, and we picked out a pair that was almost a perfect match for his minus 20 diopter prescription. And I was the lucky person to put those glasses on his face. And when I did, it changed both of our lives. Uh, I, As I often say, I gave him his vision, and he gave me mine. Um, when he saw for the first time, he smiled with the most incredible, infectious smile of joy that you could ever imagine. And I knew right there that if I kept doing work like that, I would matter. I certainly mattered to the boy. Uh, and I knew that there were many others like him that I could help. So that was sort of the motivation to start uh, this journey. It took many years from that moment to starting Vision Spring. But that was the kind of founding inspirational story uh, that got me going. Wow. And how big a problem is it, Jordan? How, you know, what, what is this, the scale of this problem? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we got back from Mexico. We saw 2,000 patients that week. Uh, of those 2,000 patients, uh, only uh, about 70% of them just needed a pair of eyeglasses. The other 30% uh, needed cataract surgery and uh, eye medications and so forth. But 70% of the people came to us just needed glasses. So we started to look at that. Um, and what's become evident over time is that the problem is huge. There are 2.5 billion people in the world whose vision can be improved by a pair of glasses who don't have them. And of those, over 600 million are visually impaired or blind. So they need glasses so strong that without them, they're visually impaired or blind, like that seven-year-old boy. Uh, and so this is a big problem, and it, and it occurs across the uh, developing parts of the world. And there are even pockets in the United States and Europe uh, where kids in the inner cities, in the Indian reservations, in the uh, more remote uh, mountain areas uh, are experiencing the same thing. Wow, wow. And... Um what other organizations are out there trying to do something about this? And, and what what is the approach that they take? So at the time uh, when I met the boy, uh, I was with an organization called VOSH, which stands for Volunteer Optometric Services to Humanity. Um, and the model that we used was we would, we would raise glasses donated from people, basically use glasses that were no longer... Uh, useful to them and we would clean them up and we would categorize them by strength and we would go and match them with um, prescriptions that we found that people had in the underserved parts of the world. Um, although we helped a lot of people see, uh, 
after doing it for a number of years as a student, I started to feel that it wasn't necessarily the best approach. We were kind of going, setting up a clinic, seeing a couple thousand people, not creating any local capacity to serve themselves, not creating anything that was truly sustainable. And then the next year we would go and we'd find a different location. And certainly that boy was happy and the many thousands of others that we served were happy, but that it wasn't, it was, it was sort of uh, spinning in the wind, if you will. And so a lot, there wasn't, there weren't really many organizations at that time that were approaching the problem and taking more of a market-based approach. There were this typical kind of charity using used products, matching it with the consumer um, and uh, donating them for free but not really stimulating any market mechanism, any local capacity to serve themselves. And so that's really why, why I started Vision Spring. Right. When you talk about capacity to serve themselves, what, what are you thinking about here? And how does the market mechanism stimulate that, Jordan? Well, um, as you know, uh, there are extremely capable people all over the world and it seemed to me a little bit ridiculous that you had to fly, uh, in my case, a first-year optometry student halfway across the world to serve people um, in a country where there are already thousands of optometrists and ophthalmologists. Um, and so why not try to create organizations or, or, or fix the problem at a more systemic level where governments and local organizations serve their own people. Um, also, uh, there's, is a, even, even if everyone in the develop world, developing world who were professionals got engaged, it would still not serve the problem. And so we also need to expand that manpower force. But as importantly as expanding the manpower force, we also have to do something what we call task shifting, taking tasks away from the highest trained people and trained lower level people to do those services. So in many cases, for instance, with reading glasses, ready-made reading glasses, in America, they're a consumer product where a person can go to a CVS and buy them over the counter or at a gas station or wherever it may be. And that's true in many parts of the developed world. And half the people in the world who need glasses just need the, the ready-made reading glasses, the plus one, plus two, plus three that we all can buy off the shelf. Um, and so more locally appropriate kind of, um, uh, of strategies that are owned by the local communities and, and uh, managed by the local uh, communities uh, was critical. And then the most critical point was looking at the end uh, at the patient not as a charity case, but as a consumer, uh, uh, someone who d deserved the dignity of choice when it came to their frames, uh, someone who deserved to be able to um, get access to this essential product at a price point that was appropriate to their capacity to pay. And so those are the kind of things that Vision Spring started to explore. That's fascinating. It gets to the heart of a really uh, interesting question, I think, about you know the role of 
charities, the role of uh, social businesses and, uh, you know, the appropriateness in, in, in different kinds of situations. Uh, on the face of it, I suppose, you it would seem that, you know, free glasses for people, uh, if you could provide free glasses, that would, you know, uh, help them. They don't have to spend uh, hard-earned or, you know, money they don't have or scarce uh, money to, to buy glasses. And, um, you know... What is the shortcoming that you saw of, uh, of, of of approaching this through a charity? Or put it the other way around, I suppose, which part of the uh, agenda you just mentioned couldn't really be served, well served by charities, but uh, better served by a uh, business? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is to uh, tell the story of a uh, Choco Indian woman I met in Western Colombia. Her name was Noka. And uh, we had set up a temporary clinic uh, with this organization, Bosch, uh, to uh, go to the poorest reaches of Western Colombia and examine over 2,000 people over a week. And she was uh, in that mix. She was uh, there on the second day of the clinic. Uh, she was known as the blind lady in her community. She was in her early 40s. And she had canoed one day down a very treacherous river to get there because she heard a team of American eye doctors were providing vision services. And this was her first opportunity to ever see an eye doctor. And we examined her eyes um, and recognized she needed a very strong pair of glasses, a minus eight for your listeners who might have a sense of what that is. Um, that basically means that she couldn't see the big E on the eye chart. Um, and uh, we gave her a pair of glasses, and for the first time in her life, she saw she saw 2020, and we were all very proud of ourselves, and we gave ourselves high fives, and she went um, back upriver, and we continued to see patients. Uh, two days later, uh, she returns to the clinic, and through Indian translation, Spanish, English, uh, the story she told was when she got back to her village, she was uh, ostracized by her... Uh, village mates because her glasses looked ridiculous um and we explained to her um this was the only pair of glasses given her very unusual prescription that matched her prescription that we had um but she was absolutely right the, the glasses look ridiculous because the pair that did match her prescription were a 1950s pair of cat eye glasses with rhinestones and although they might look uh, cool in the East Village of uh, New York or in uh, a hip part of Berlin or, or, or London, uh, they did look very inappropriate and, and kind of crazy on the nose of a, a Choco Indian woman who is dressed with traditional garb. And we explained this to her that this was the only pair that we had. And then she did something that just blew all of our minds. Uh, she took the glasses off her face, she put them on a wooden table, and she went back into her canoe and canoed upriver, basically choosing to be blind rather than to be ostracized. And it stopped me in my tracks to face the reality that people, in her case, a person, would choose blindness over vision because of the fact that her frame was inappropriate. And so I said, okay, this we're, we're doing something wrong if someone's choosing blindness over what we're providing we're doing something fundamentally wrong and what we were doing fundamentally wrong was we weren't taking into consideration the dignity of the consumer and the fact that whether you're rich or poor 
Um, vanity is not monopolized by rich people, and people care about what they look like, and glasses sit squarely in the middle of your face. And that we started, I started to think that, well, if we sold the glasses, then it would be incumbent upon us to make sure that the glasses that we were providing were culturally appropriate and aspirational to our consumers because they would vote with their wallet. They wouldn't buy something that wasn't. And so that sort of turned the whole model in my mind upside down and it was a really a stark lesson for why it was critical to engage the consumer uh, and understand the consumer before going out and um, going to market with your products. Right. That's very interesting. Do you think um, a, a, a charity would have been able to do that? How would they have been hampered? Well, you know, uh, in terms of a charity being able to do to sell the glasses to meet the needs in the way you're talking about. Well, I I, I think uh, a, a cha the charity in our in our case was hampered because we couldn't charge for the glasses, so we wouldn't want to pay for the glasses. Uh, and so we would just take what we could get rather than designing and developing a product line that was specific for our consumers. And so a charity was uh, at, at, at a much bigger disadvantage. Now, mind you, Vision Spring is a charity. It's a, it's a nonprofit social enterprise. So although we charge our customers for their glasses, uh, we are not a for-profit organization. So there are ways for charities to uh, deliver these important products and services, but to do it in a way that has more sustainability built into it and more, most importantly, uh, builds into it the needs and desires and the aspirations of the consumer that you're trying to reach. That's very interesting, Jordan. And, and did you think about becoming a for-profit? We did think about being a for-profit, but because we were um, so focused on the impact and the mission uh, and we were so focused on providing eye services for people who heretofore hadn't had access to the markets because the private sector was uh, not geared to serve their needs. Um, the time horizon that we saw that was necessary to return uh, capital to our investors was too far out uh, for it to be a for-profit to raise significant capital for it. Uh, so we decided to be a, a non-profit, but still use the same business principles and practices that any for-profit company would uh, would use. So if you came to one of our board meetings, you would have no idea if we were a for-profit. You, you would have no idea we were a non-profit. You would think of us as a for-profit company because our our conversations are largely taken up by supply chain management issues cost of goods issues, margin issues, marketing and sales techniques, and so forth. Right, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Thank you, Jordan. What's the scale of your operations at the moment? So, um, we th this year, in 2016, we will uh, sell 1.1 uh, million pair of glasses in 23 countries. Uh, we started, the first year we sold 800 pair of glasses, uh, the next year, 5,000 pair of glasses. Uh, it took us 10 years to hit a million customers. Uh, it took us two years to hit our second millionth customer. And now we're at a run rate of about a million a year. Uh, and we plan to, and we've now collectively over 15 years, 
have served over 3 million people, uh, and we have plans to be at 10 million customers by 2020. Right. That's that's great. It's interesting the the time it takes at the beginning, but then the momentum that you've built up over time. What are uh, some of the biggest challenges you faced along the way, Jordan? Uh, many. Uh, this could take up uh, a full hour podcast or more. It could take up multiple hour podcasts <laughs> and tears. <laughs> so challenges are are, are 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 are. There's no shortage of them. You know, in order for an organization to thrive, whether it's a for-profit organization or a social enterprise or a non-profit organization, there's there's really uh, three uh, three things that you need. Uh, you need um, resources, you need good people, and you need a product or service that people want and need. Um, and there are challenges around each of those three things. So, uh, capital. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, it is always challenging with, I don't know the number, but it's in the tens of thousands of nonprofit organizations in the world, if not millions, I think it's millions of nonprofit organizations in the world. Um, yet another one uh, knocking on the doors of foundations and high net worth individuals and corporate corporations. So uh, there are a whole slew of challenges around raising funds uh, from the beginning to even as you scale. Um, then there are a whole slew of challenges around people. You know, how do you start something that requires so much effort and sophistication and complexity with desperately little resources? You know, how do you find those sort of smart young people who are willing to work 80 hour weeks, uh, but not get remunerated for it, uh, in terms of dollars, but remunerated in based on the impact that they're providing and, and the goodwill that they're feeling. Um, so finding the right people, building the teams, <coughs> building the structure of the organization, lots of challenges around that. And then the third bucket of challenges have to do with your, our customers. Um, you know, I thought somewhat naively that once we started to make eyeglasses available to uh, folks who had been underserved in the past, we'd have find a phenomenon like this, what happened with the uh, mobile phone and cell phones, and that it would go viral. Uh, it didn't, uh, because there were more complexities, and it turns out that there are a lot of uh, social stigmas around the use of glasses. 70% uh, of women in India, girls in India, think glasses make them less marriageable. Um, in China, uh, teachers and parents tell kids not to wear glasses because it will make their eyes worse, whereas the truth is actually quite the opposite, that if you need glasses and you get them, they slow down the progression of, of nearsightedness. Um, the capacity to pay is low. The understanding of the value of the product is low. There's not a history or tradition of wearing the uh, glasses, so there's, there's no built-in um, uh, demand. So there's a whole bunch of challenges around that as well. Um, but I could go on and on. And <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Now, listening to customers you're talking about there, I mean, it seems like common sense. And I guess 
better you know commercial organizations do that um you know are able to get a good sense of what their uh customers uh, need and want and 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 able to respond to that in a social business and in your case um how how easy is it um i mean it seems seems a pretty obvious thing to do in a sense yet i know uh some organizations uh, struggle with this yeah i mean i i think uh, there is a very paternalistic uh attitude in, in many cases out in the nonprofit world that we have, uh, you need clean water, you need electricity, you need better roofs over your, over your head, you need better agricultural products, you need better educational products, you need better uh, health uh, interventions, and on and on and on. And we have the solution for you. Uh, and these poor villages are inundated with well, you know, well-meaning and well-intentioned groups who are kind of throwing products and services in their direction, uh, in many cases, um, that are often not field tested and not developed by the community and aren't signaled as important by the community. And so, the, 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 again, this, the story of, of that Colombian India Indian is a perfect example of we were providing something that we thought was important and was was a, and vision no one can argue is essential, um, but we just were doing it the wrong way so that she chose to be blind over accepting our, our solution. Um, so unless you listen to your customers, even though what you're providing is important and necessary and, and positive, um, you won't be able to uh, do it in the most efficient way. So listening to customers is, is central to what we do at Vision Spring. Right, right. That's very interesting. And we um, develop our products based on that feedback. Uh, so, so our best-selling products are iterated from listening to the customer, developing a product for them, then listening to them again, saying what they like and what they don't like or what they wish they had, and then iterating uh, off of those uh, conversations and those uh, customer feedback. That's interesting. I spoke to somebody recently who talked about uh, a problem that they saw with many social entrepreneurs, or some at least, uh, that uh, not really spending enough time to understand a problem, and uh, you know, coming to a, looking for a solution uh, quickly. Uh, and 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 I, I guess in these kind of situations, the more you look, the, the 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 different layers you see, the different interdependencies and the complexities in a system. Was that the case when you were looking at the solving this problem? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, that um, absolutely it was uh, a, a multi-layered effect that we are probably on our six or seventh iteration of our business model. Uh, and so one of the uh, challenges that we had, um, speaking of challenges, was that when we first launched, we became sort of known for a particular model. Um, and the model was successful up to a point, uh, but we realized it wasn't our scaling model. It wasn't going to scale the way we wanted and so we had to stay in touch with our donors and explain to them, although you've invested in this model and we are helping people and we've learned some valuable lessons, um, we're going to pull the plug on this model or we're going we're to take the lessons from those models and we're going to kind of iterate it into a next model. So model iteration and doing it uh, quickly.
economically and uh, strategically is, is a critical component of any social enterprise. Uh, and we've become, I think, well-respected as an organization that iterates fast, is, is quite um, transparent in terms of sharing our lessons learned, both in regards to our successes, but more importantly, in regards to our failures. Right. So could you talk a little bit about that in, in maybe a little bit of detail? I think that's a fascinating observation. Uh, I, I, I did want to talk to you a little bit about scaling, um, which I guess is something that must be uh, on your mind a lot, uh, no matter how, 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 how much growth you see, the scale of the problem is so vast. Um, how do you define where you want to be and, and, and what, what, what have you observed that you can talk about in maybe more general terms about building an organization, building your organization that it can scale? Yeah, so uh, building a, a scaling organization is, is a big challenge. You know, we used to talk about small is beautiful. Uh, there is an aspect of that, that small is beautiful, but uh, you don't want to tell that to people who are blind who need glasses because that means they're not going to get them if uh, we stay too small and beautiful. Um, so we are constantly um, looking at the issue area with a sense of urgency because even though it's not a life or death issue, uh, it is urgent for that 10-year-old boy or girl in rural Ghana or Bangladesh who is falling further and further behind in school because he or she can't see the blackboard and will ultimately fall out of school uh, unless they have their vision corrected. It's urgent for the 45-year-old tailor whose quality of work is going down and customers are leaving in droves because the quality of his work is going down. Um, and so we need to scale. We, we need to scale in, in rapidly because every day that we don't, kids fall out of school, adults fall out of the workforce, people die on the roads from poor vision and road traffic safety. And so scaling is an imperative for our organization and to do it as rapidly as we can. Um, so having said that, you know, how, how do you scale? Uh, one way that we have uh, scaled uh, is, to, is through partnerships. And that's a really important part of what we do. When we first started uh, Vision Spring, our first model was what we call our business in a bag social, uh, vision entrepreneur model, where we would train local women to start small businesses selling eyeglasses from a backpack. And it was a wonderful model. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons from it, uh, but it was really tough to scale because it was expensive to have an independent sales force. They were selling to people who were at the end of the road, so the cost of distribution was high, the capacity to pay was low, all the business dynamics were working against us. And so we recognized that it would be better to work through partnerships and try to find organizations that already had uh, sales forces and already had natural distribution networks that we could leverage off of and introduce our product and service into their basket of goods. And we uh, first work started working with BRAC in Bangladesh about eight years ago. Uh, they, uh, I don't know if you know about BRAC um, or your listeners do, but they probably do. It's the largest nonprofit organization in the world. Um, they have an $800 million budget. Uh, Two-thirds of it are costs recovered through social enterprise activities. 
Uh, and they have, over their 40 years of existence, created a sales force of over 100,000 village entrepreneurs, or they call them shabikas, or community health workers. And we have trained, uh, we started with 50, we went up to 500, then to 5,000. Now we've trained over 20,000 of those community health workers to sell eyeglasses as part of what they already sell, things like um, Band-Aids and aspirins and clean birthing kits and nutritional products and sanitary napkins. And we've add, added a vision component to their work. And I'll be heading to uh, Bangladesh in February uh, to celebrate with their team the millionth pair of glasses sold through that network. Um, and, uh, and so partnership is, is a critical uh, way of scaling. Right, that's very interesting. Well, quickly on that, I know uh, we're coming to the end, but how difficult is it to partner? Um, it often seems to me with social entrepreneurs, it's a great uh, potential way of, of, of growing your impact, um, and yet uh, I know it has challenges as well. Yes, you know, partnerships are like any relationship. They have to be mutually uh, valued. Uh, they have each group has to respect the other uh, open and constant communication is, is critical um, uh, giving credit to the other group is important uh, so by no means is partnership easy uh, as people uh, you know who are listening know even from a personal perspective uh, that the partnership uh, is is often compromised um, but it's a very rich way to go if you can make it work. Um, so you lose some control, uh, but you gain uh, as much as you lose. So as long as you're willing to do those things and uh, respect the other, communicate with the other, uh, listen to the other, um, uh, advocate for the other, um, celebrate the wins of the other, um, put the other first in many cases over your own narrow self-interest as an organization. Those are some of the key uh, ingredients of a successful partnership. Sounds like great, great advice, Jordan. Um, maybe finally, I, I, I know uh, you've talked about uh, moving from building an enterprise to building a movement. How's that going and what's next? Yeah, so in regards to that, um, we at Business Spring are very optimistic that we will continue to go from a million people served a year to two to three and, and, above, and up and up and up. Um, however, uh, a few years ago, I recognized, uh, given that I'm 55 now, that my time was starting to run out and that I needed to accelerate even faster given the numbers we shared earlier with your listeners of over 600 million people being visually impaired or blind and over 2 billion people needing glasses in the world. And so how could we you know, radically transformationally scale? Um, and it became clear to me that it, it, it wasn't necessarily going to be done by using an enterprise approach like Vision Spring. So Vision Spring will continue to scale, but in order to really solve the bigger problem, we really started to had to think of it as a system change kind of movement. And so about two years ago, I uh, worked with uh, another Vision Springer and we co-founded an organization called the Alliance, which is a multi-stakeholder initiative to bring together governments, private sector and civil society 
to do three things around this issue area. One is to make the case for why it's important and advocate for it. Two is mobilize significant new resources to the issue area. And three is to accelerate the impact of the people who were the organizations that were um, working in the space by better coordination and collaboration and better strategy. But as important, also bring in new actors uh, from adjacent spaces uh, like the education space, like the um, productivity and labor space, like the road traffic safety space, uh, like the technology space, and all these other spaces that Vision is a critical enabler uh, for their work. Um, and so this multi-stakeholder alliance uh, called the I-Alliance uh, is up and running. Uh, we issued a report uh, with the World Economic Forum in June called Eyeglasses for Global Development, Bridging the Visual Divide. You can find it on our website, eyelines.org. Uh, it's a really good uh, paper that makes the case for why vision is important to global development. And we intentionally published it with the World Economic Forum because we wanted to get it out of the health sphere. We wanted to get it out of the vision sphere and make the case that vision really is a cross-cutting issue that has more to do with global economies uh, and other issues like global education and productivity and safety. And so that is our, our new system change effort. And so Vision Spring continues to grow as a enterprise and using an enterprise approach to solving the problem. And the Alliance has joined in parallel uh, to start a system change uh, approach to solving the problem. Fascinating. It's fascinating, Jordan. Um, it's uh, hugely inspiring uh, to talk to you and hear the great work you're doing. And I wish you the very best success in the future. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, we, we appreciate the opportunity to share our story with uh, you and your listeners. And um, I, I hope um, some of the topics were useful and uh, helpful to all the folks who are out there trying to do wonderful things to improve the state of the world. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.